You're listening to a special edition of I Like That Story. This is a serialized podcast of a fiction book I wrote called Dead Air under my pen name, J.J. Gould. And then following the podcast, I'll talk a little bit about the creative process, some of the technology involved, some of the decisions I had to make, uh, both in writing the book, getting it published, getting it edited, getting a book cover, and then all the way to uh, (laughs) uh, doing a podcast. I hope you can join me at the end of this first episode. This is episode number one of Dead Air, A Bad Day. Two startling facts exist in the simple plain state of South Dakota. If you die there, there will be no autopsy for you, unless the coroner is absolutely certain that there is some sort of suspicious reason for your death. And the second is that most coroners are untrained morticians looking to make a little extra money. In the dying town of Dancing, South Dakota, salvation comes in the form of a rich retired basketball player who promises to build a gaming casino and hunter's paradise. The only person suspicious of his motives is a down-and-out reporter from the local radio station, and the only evidence he has is a garbled message recorded by accident by a scared and desperate heiress. Prologue His vacation turned out to be quite productive after all. Dormeyer wasn't much of a hunter, but a buddy who used to play for the Knicks had told him about the pheasants in South Dakota, so he went along. The trip was a mix of highs and lows, a lot of well-heeled guys in brand-new Cabela's camo with Benelli's they probably had never shot before, but it was still okay. It was the end of October, and the sky was the kind of brilliant blue that made it hard to focus on anything close by. He was not used to how far away the horizon was and found himself taking deep breaths, searching for the familiar smell of civilization, but there wasn't any, just sky and prairie, the trucks small and insignificant parked at the far edge of the field. Dormeyer was a big man, and the fame and money of his career made him even bigger. But the vast prairie pressed down on him and made him seem insignificant a feeling he did not like. But the birds were everywhere, and soon Dormeyer got the knack like he always did, and shooting the birds out of the sky gave him the measure of power and control he was used to. Afterwards, the lodge was stocked with top-shelf booze and some hookers from nearby, some of whom were so young they didn't realize yet that they were, in fact, hookers. (laughs) But that was okay, too. But the really productive part came that night as he overheard some of the local guys trying to impress the rich and famous. He caught a bit of the conversation going on behind him. Burned to a crisp, all four of them. Is that what killed them? Probably. How should I know? I'm just an undertaker. I thought you said you were the county coroner. I am the county coroner. Been that for twelve years. Well, don't you got to be a doctor or something? Nah, not here. You just got to get elected. And who else wants to drive around at all hours fishing stiffs out of sloughs and burnt cars? Uh, what if somebody gets murdered? The man laughed. In dancing? <laughs> Not likely. Anyway, if it looks suspicious, we can ship a body to Rapid City or Sioux Falls to a corner there, like if a guy's been shot or something. 
Sometimes the family's all paranoid, so they'll pay to have an autopsy if they want one. Uh, what if someone keels over while they're on the interstate or something? Same thing. If the family wants an autopsy, they can have one. Most of the time they don't. Fascinated, Dormeyer fought the urge to turn around to join the conversation. Instead, he stared into the fireplace and tried to imagine a place where people died and nobody seemed to care how they died. Hmm. It was something to think about. Friday, Chapter 1 Stan The wind. Always the wind. This time it came out of the north at about twenty miles an hour, blowing shards of snow and tumbleweeds across miles of emptiness until it reached the main street of Dancing, South Dakota. What buildings there were didn't slow the wind down much. In a few short blocks, it continued on its way south, leaving a few tumbleweeds behind, whirling along its empty streets. It was the end of March, technically spring, but the wind had a bite that burned bare skin. An ironic drift of snow collected on the edge of the display windows of Amadi's classy clothes, where inside shadowed mannequins wore shorts and swimsuits. They looked cold. At 5.25 in the morning, there was little sound and certainly no traffic. The metallic clanging a rope makes when it's banging against a flagpole. The wind, of course and the rhythmic click the three stoplights on Main Street made as the lights changed, directing traffic that wasn't there. Red. Click. Green. Click. Yellow. Click. Two blocks from the radio station, a lone man rounded the corner, running. His breath came out in ragged puffs of white, then was whipped away by the wind in his face. He lurched, and caught himself on the trunk of a parked car, bent over, and wretched. Thin and yellow, the vomit smelled of acid and alcohol, but the smell, too, was carried off by the wind. Stan was late. Sinon was at 5.30. Wiping his jaw with the back of his hand as he ran, he reached for the keys in his pocket out of reflex. The battered white steel door at the back of the building was the one the jocks used. Three months before, a strong wind had blown the door open and sprung the hinges, and now it couldn't be closed, much less locked. Now the wind had slammed it open again, and it banged angrily against the back of the building. A small drift of snow trailed into the back of the wide-open building. After the door had broken, Stan had reported it and was ignored. That morning, a broken door was fine. It was perfect. Every second counts when you're late. He flicked on a light and pulled the door closed in the same motion. He fastened it with a bungee cord wrapped around the handle and hooked through an eye bolt screwed into the door frame. He stepped through a small pile of snow toward the rack of radio equipment. The room was still cold, and the fluorescent light was blue and flickering. The wind still whistled through the sprung door frame, but the furnace was hard at it, its noise and warmth drowning out most of the outdoor noise. Above the rack hung yellowed typewritten instructions taped there a long time before by a forgotten engineer. Step 1. Engage black button and allow filaments to warm up for one minute. Step 2. Engage red plates button and turn on transmitter. Step 3. 
check VU meter for proper readings. Stan knew these by heart, of course. These were the steps for turning on the transmitter and beginning another broadcast day. He slapped the black button and ran down the hallway while the plates were warming up. He flicked on lights as he ran into the copy room. Yellow paper had been pooling off the wire into a pile on the floor since midnight. He ripped the copy off the teletype and headed back to the transmitter rack, a stream of wire copy trailing behind. He punched the red button, and the needle jumped, faltered, and then steadied. The static on the monitor stopped, and the silence meant that KDAN was now broadcasting dead air. Stan stopped again and heaved into a wastebasket. The smell of vodka and grapefruit juice was immediate. No time. Deal with it later. Still trailing yellow paper behind him, Stan headed to the control room, flicked on a light, grabbed a battered cart off the top of the rack, and slammed it into the cart deck at exactly 5.30.15 and hit the start button. The cart deck was the third one and was broken. In fact, all four cart decks were broken. Each deck had its own frustrating issues that made a professional broadcast impossible. Deck number three had a rubber capstan wheel so hard and slippery, no cart with more than 40 seconds of tape on it would play without dragging. And sure enough, the tape made a wowing sound as the music climbed up to speed. Good Morning with Shirley Jones and Frank Sinatra woke up dancing for the millionth time. An earlier program director had attempted to replace the song, but Alice Ronseth, who owned the Edge of Town Motel, had complained. Finally, she offered to sponsor the song each morning, and that ended that. The music played for 30 seconds, then Bill Conley's voice started in. He'd left about three years ago, but the cart was still good, so nobody bothered changing it. For 42 seconds, he greeted dancing in a cheery sing-song, welcoming them to another KDAN broadcast day, chock full of news, sports, weather, of course weather, and farm market reports, all serving the fine people of dancing and the entire West Central region. He ended by thanking the edge of town. Wake up to a great morning at the edge of town motel. 23 seconds of music followed with a hard outro, then dead air. Fortunately, Stan understood radio and had been there before. He knew how to handle out-of-breath late and drunk and puking sick. Still gasping for breath, he dashed into the on-air studio and grabbed a pair of beat-up headphones, $80 Sennheisers from before the fall, bound together with duct tape. The studio was a depressing combination of chipped imitation wood formica and faded red shag carpet. It smelled of years of stale cigarette smoke mixed with the new tang of vomit, sweat, and alcohol. He slammed a random cart off the rack into the cart machine and just as the music stopped, turned on the mic and potted it up. Good morning, this is Stanley Martin, welcoming you to another Friday, the last day of March. He clicked off the mic for a split second to exhale and grab another quick breath. A brisk late winter morning, and your complete forecast is next. He clicked off the mic again and fired the cart machine, triggering the commercial to play. Good. Just 60. Usually, no spots were scheduled between 5.30 and 6 a.m., but bonus spots were okay and sometimes, like this morning, absolutely necessary.
Still catching his breath, Stan quickly scanned and sorted the copy in the piles. Using the hard edge of the counter next to the board to rip the twenty-foot sheet of paper into individual stories. His eyes caught the headline, Regional Forecast and Current Temps. Good. He ripped that and stacked that by the mic. Ten seconds. He kept breathing, deep trying to get on top of his oxygen debt. His eyes were bloodshot. He was unshaven. A streak of drying vomit was trailing down his sweatshirt and his hair was matted with sweat. But Stan was doing radio, and no one could see any of that. All they could see was what their imaginations told them to see, and that was conveyed to them through sound alone. And that sound was the reason why firing Stanley Martin would be very hard. Stanley Martin had the voice of God. Thirty-eight years old, but sounding eternal, deep, resonant, warm and confident, a voice that was smooth and layered with a hint of raspy texture like honey mixed with whiskey. His whole life people had commented on his voice, but it was more than that. Stan also had the rare ability to sound as though he was talking to just you, your kind and good neighbor coming into your warm kitchen and sitting at your table telling you about the day's events and making you feel like you were being led into the confidence of some great world leader. Catching his breath between sentences and commercials, Stan bought some time by throwing in a cart with Dave Brubeck's Take 5 on it. He had a stash of carts beside the board, which he used when he didn't have time to queue up a 45 on the turntable. People not in radio didn't realize all the things he could do in 30 seconds, much less three minutes. By 5.45, he had time to toss the vomit-coated wastebasket out back by the dumpster. He could clean it up later, wash his face and gargle, strip off his sweatshirt. He was too hot, and his sweat smelled of alcohol, and even make some coffee. But he also knew he would fool nobody. He'd failed. Again. Sighing, he looked forward to the rest of his day with dread. Maybe, that night, he could sleep. It was only 6 a.m. How can you fall any lower? Stan and the rest of the track team knew the bear was right. A lot of wind that day, and no chance at a record. The bear is what the team called him when he wasn't around a big lumbering man with bad knees. He was the last guy you'd think to coach a small college track team, especially when he could barely speak the language. But there he was, against all odds, and there they were at the Drake Relays, ready to compete against better programs. No, he had said when he heard the boys muttering about the expensive equipment and the luxury motor coaches surrounding them. They themselves had come in a beat-up church bus borrowed from St. Dominic's. Most had one uniform to practice and compete in, and a few had just one pair of shoes to last the whole season. His Slavic face was impassive, his accent thick. Better is here, he tapped his head. Even better is here, and he tapped his chest. That was something he said a lot. And because he believed in each member of the team, because he would look in their eyes, searching for the very best they could give, they believed in themselves. 
This strange belief carried over not only in the throwing events, he himself had been a long-past Olympic competitor in the shot, but also inexplicably to the other events. They would not win that day, could not win that day. The team only had five members, two for the shot put, discus and javelin, one high jumper, and two runners. Yet, surprisingly, they managed to perform beyond themselves, placing well in events they had no business competing in. Stan McGarvey was the biggest surprise. Lean and lithe, with penetrating blue eyes, the kid seemed to glide along the tracks on legs of steel. He came in second in the half-mile, a total dark horse, and then got 4.04.03 in the mile, an incredible time in that wind. The bear lumbered over, swaying from side to side on bad knees. Stanley. He only used a first name if the request was important. The young man was flat on the ground, stretching his rubbery legs, breathing hard, trying to replenish the oxygen his muscles had burned up. Still catching his breath, he stood up, alert, hands on hips. Yes, coach? The bear stood close and looked down into his eyes, measuring him. Can you do the two-mile? Their eyes locked for a few long seconds. The young man's eyes widened, and he gulped a little, looking away. He had never run two miles in competition, and he knew the bear knew that. He drew a deep breath and paused. Then he gathered himself and looked up at the coach with a gaze that many found unsettling. He took another breath, nodded, and said simply, Yes, sir. Chapter 2 Larry Carl. At 6.58 a.m., Larry Carl came in the back through the beat-up white door. He pulled it open far enough to reach in and grab the bungee cord that held it closed. As he opened it, the wind grabbed the door from his hand and slammed it against the building. That had happened many times. A hole had been punched into cinder block wall just the size of the doorknob. Larry swore at the door without much feeling and pulled it closed again. Above and below the door were chewed-up places where various nomadic door-closers had been tried over the years and had failed, each ripped out of place by the wind. The bungee cord worked the best over time, and only the jocks used this door anyway. Larry sniffed the air and smiled. Oh, Stan the man got a little juice last night. Should be a little exciting this morning. Larry had been born and raised in dancing and was a little suspicious of Stan, who wasn't from here, and more than a little jealous of the time Stan had spent in the major markets. Stan had never told Larry where he had worked, but Eddie the night jock said he let slip a few times he'd worked years in Atlanta, Chicago, maybe Phoenix, a lot of places. Larry's job was to run the board for Stan during the 7 o'clock news hour, then from 8.30 to noon do Carl's Corner, a show where he read farm market prices every 20 minutes, played some easy-listening LPs, and generally did as little as possible. In the business, he was known as a puker, a term used for jocks who thought they sounded better with a forced sing-song delivery and plug nose. Larry ambled into the studio just as Stan finished pulling the spots for the seven o'clock hour and stacking the carts next to the cart decks off to the right side of the board. 
Technically, that was Larry's job, but both were okay with the current arrangement. Stan didn't like having people in a studio when he was on the air, and Larry didn't like work. Bored at Big Stad? Larry was six feet and 260. Stan was about 5'9". Larry often called him Big Stan, hoping it would bug him. If it did bother him, Larry didn't know. Stan had an excellent poker face. Larry sniffed the air so Stan would notice him. <laughs> uh, what happened to you last night? Hang on, Stan said, and flipped his mic on. When that happened, the red on-air light turned on and the monitor went silent. Every jock who had ever pulled a shift knew to shut up when the monitor was silent or risk being heard on the air. Stan's mic was on, so Larry kept his mouth shut. Son of a bitch is avoiding me. Thirty seconds clicked off the clock while Larry stared at Stan, and Stan stared at the sweeping second hand on the clock. Larry was irked. Shit. It wasn't fair. Stan was the drunk. Stan was the one looking like a wino, and here he was, calm and cool, like he was Edward R. Murrow or whoever. Stan gave the legal ID. You're listening to The Big Neighbor, 870 AM, KDAN, Dancing, South Dakota. Even though Larry didn't want to, he found himself watching the sweeping second hand. Five seconds were left. It's 22 degrees, and at the tone, 7 o'clock. He potted up the network in time to hear an electronic bip, followed by the mutual network news sounder, and another authoritative voice started telling the news of the day. Bastards a pro. The thought bothered Larry more than he thought it would. With a sour expression, he fell into the routine developed over a thousand mornings. Stan pulled the plug on his cans and moved over to the news chair on the other side of the board. He sat on the other side of the fake wood countertop, where he would be what his official title was at KDAN, news director. From there, he read the news at 7.05, 7.30, and 7.55, and then would disappear to record some news. He would emerge, usually within 15 minutes, with four neatly labeled carts containing news segments that were played throughout the morning. Larry was officially known as farm director. A rural station like KDAN featured a lot of farm news, mainly so they could play spots from big ag companies. The national ad agencies that represented these ag companies had no idea how cheap spots were in South Dakota and were gouged accordingly. As farm director, Larry's job was to run the board for Stan, rip and read the farm market reports, and read the sports. Larry was a sports legend in dancing, or so he believed, Played some nine-man football back in the day before the asshole coach kicked him off the team. The basketball coach was just as bad, no eye for talent, so much of Larry's sports coverage included commentary from his world-weary perspective. Larry sniffed the air again so Stan would notice him again and asked again, What happened to you last night? Stan looked at Larry with a blank gaze for a long second. Long story. Say, Larry, I've got to clean up the wire and get my news cuts. I'll be back. The gaze had intimidated Larry, but he didn't want to admit it, so he slurred his voice for a snappy comeback. Okay, Big Stan, but don't fall over or nothing, okay? Chapter 3 Happy Jack 
By the time Happy Jack Wilson got to the station, it was a little after eight in the morning, and most of the regular staff had already arrived. Lois and Lorna worked the front desk and handled billing and traffic. Both were small, with mouse-like movements, and were whispering busily when Jack walked in. Happy Jack was the general manager, an overweight middle-aged man with a comb-over and a perpetually strained smile. Even on the coldest days, his face had a sheen of sweat. The girls, as he called Lois and Lorna, had left girlhood about forty years ago, keeping only their high school hairdos and a love for gossip. Most days they shuffled and collated the stacks of paper a small radio station generated and looked for something to disapprove of. Judging by their tight lips and eager expressions, today must be a doozy. Hell of a day, huh, girls? Happy Jack believed a breezy nonchalance was the best way to handle most circumstances. Lorna stopped her whispering to look significantly first to Jack and then to the broadcast studio. KDAN was built in the days when radio had an element of live performance. The studio was about ten by ten, glass on two sides, and it was common back in the day to bring groups of school children in to tour the facilities. That hadn't happened for quite a while now. Kids were now going to the TV station in Mitchell, and the glassed-in studio looked like an overgrown aquarium in need of cleaning. Through the murky glass, it was still obvious that Stan was having a bad day. Oh, geez, not today. It was no secret that the girls shared Larry Carl's distrust of Stan. He was not from here and drank besides and would like nothing better than to have him fired. It was also no secret that Happy Jack was not that good of a general manager. Instead of hiring people and firing people, he preferred a simpler method that when problems arose, he simply would feign ignorance and wait for things to blow over. He tried it now. Facing away from the studio, he turned to the girls. Are uh, you girls going to the press conference or staying back? In a magnanimous gesture earlier in the week, Happy Jack had said anyone who wanted to go to the Holiday Inn for the press conference, except the on-air staff, could go. It was a big deal, and a part of the world where big deals didn't happen very much. Hopefully, talk of the big events of the day would derail the current situation. The girls exchanged looks again. Uh-oh. Jack pretended he didn't notice and breezed back to the hallway by the studio to get a cup of coffee. The layout of KDAN was haphazard and inefficient, but at least the coffee was located where the late night and early staff could get to it easily, right outside the studio underneath the on-air sign. The farther away from the front door one ventured, the more dilapidated the building looked, and that morning was even worse. The smell of sweat and alcohol was obvious and radiating off his news director, who at that moment had left the studio and was shaving some stubble off his chin over the sink outside the bathroom in a corner of the lounge. A long time before, another owner had converted a record storage room into a lounge-type area for the jocks, complete with sink, shower, and some beat-up couches. The jocks liked it and never cleaned it, and the rest of the staff avoided it, if at all possible. Wearing rumpled khakis and a yellow wife-beater, Stan wiped bits of shaving cream off his face and reached for a worn white dress shirt and tie. His shift was over, 
and he was getting ready for the press conference. Oh, geez, not today of all days. Happy Jack's strained smile got wider. Uh, Big day, huh, Stan? Stan nodded, buttoned the shirt, and looked in the cracked mirror, avoiding eye contact. He put the wrong buttons in the wrong holes and had to start all over again. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. Happy Jack was tempted to walk closer and give a pep talk, a really good win-one-for-the-gipper type, but halfway across the room the fumes discouraged him. Maybe if Stan brushed his teeth and gargled and put on some cologne, he knew Stan's car wasn't working, and maybe that was a good thing. Walking four blocks to the Holiday Inn might give him a chance to air out. He tried more cheeriness. Uh, I heard a TV crew from Sioux Falls is coming out to cover it. Uh, Maybe even someone from Bismarck, if the roads are good. Nothing. He added lamely, Well, that'll put dancing on the map. (laughs) No answer. Happy Jack topped off his coffee and sauntered back to his office by the front door, smiling at everyone until the door was safely closed. Oh, jeez. Chapter 4. Stan. The press conference was scheduled for 10 in the morning at the conference center of the local Holiday Inn. The conference center was actually a rectangular steel box attached to the hotel with absolutely no attempt at architectural style except for the spelling of the name. Center was spelt with an R-E but it was big enough for a couple of thousand when the livestock show was in town. Stan had hurried to get the newscasts recorded, checked the batteries in the Morant's tape deck, shouldered the deck, plus cord and mic, into the KDAN news knapsack, and headed out the door. A standing joke among the jocks went that the TV stations out of Sioux Falls and Rapid City got news vans, even a network satellite truck if they needed it, but the big neighbor, KDAN, got a news knapsack. Oh, well. The wind was still at it, snapping the frayed flag by the post office, but Stan didn't mind. The fresh air was cleaning the last bits of a bad morning away, and besides, the track was only four blocks. He left his hooded sweatshirt behind and had only a rumpled white shirt, a black tie, and khakis underneath his trench coat. His black dress shoes were the embodiment of life after the fall. They were steel-toed mechanic shoes he'd bought in clearance at the J.C. Penney store before they left town. Heavy, not stylish, they were black and affordable. The right sole had a crack in it, but that was waiting in line behind the other things that needed money until payday. His face was red and wind-burned by the time he arrived at 9.45, and Larry Carl had been right. Two TV news crews were setting up in front of the podium, shoving Hal from the Gazette aside without so much as a glance. Hal saw Stan coming in and then shot a glance at a TV reporter and then looked back at Stan and rolled his eyes. TV. Hal wrote about 70% of what the Dancing Regional Gazette put out. His real name was Hal Steinwaller, but he always introduced himself with, Hey, I'm Hal from the Gazette. So that was the name that most called him. Stan went to attach his mic to the podium. A flashy, self-important blonde whirled around and flashed him a 500-watt smile. 
Hi, I'm Stacy Anderson, KSDU-TV. I'm Stanley Martin, KDAN Radio. Oh. Stacy shut the smile off immediately, saving it for someone important. She could not believe she'd drawn this assignment. Meeting a former NBA star and millionaire was cool, but the five-hour one-way trip was not. And to make matters worse, the other news crew from Bismarck had gotten there before them and hogged all the outlets by the podium. And even worse yet, their reporter had on a virtually identical outfit. Bitch. Stupid. Stupid. A small voice shouted inside his brain, You are stupid. For the first mile, he'd kept his shoulder on Jenkins, pushing him to set a faster pace and leave the pack, and now he was dying. He was a half-mile man, and he was running a two-mile race. His legs were rubber, and his lungs felt as if a coarse file had been rasping against them. He could feel his muscles nodding, giving up. <sighs> what had he been thinking? Why not, why not just quit? He had nothing to prove. He couldn't win. No, he gasped. Jenkins heard it and glanced back. They were rounding the track, and Stan could see and feel another runner, Hendrickson, finding a gear and closing the gap behind him. No, he gasped again, angry that time, angry that his body was weak, angry at the pain. No, he said again, and again. Hendrickson was gaining stride by stride. One lap was left, and then he was... He was there. He could feel Hendrickson sense him right behind. With a flood of red and a burst of pain, his mind demanded more, 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 more. Then the finish line flashed past, and he collapsed onto the track, skidding into unconsciousness. Later, after the bus ride home, the bear approached him in the locker room. Stanley... His face was impassive, but there was moisture at the corner of his eye. Stan had ice on his legs, where the long scrapes from the cinder track had rasped. He was still in some pain, but he could deal with it. He looked up with that penetrating gaze that made so many uncomfortable. The old coach got carefully to his knees. The locker room was empty. Gray metal lockers were closed, and the smell of sweat and cleanser hung in the air like incense. The coach's face was working through a number of emotions, his mouth puzzling for words to say. Finally, he leaned into Stan's face, looking down into his eyes, and with a huge, gnarled finger tapped the young man's chest gently. I... He paused, unable to come up with a word. He wiped his eyes and tried again. I... You... Are... Hero. He paused, thinking about the word, and then nodded. Hero. With that, the coach seemed to become self-conscious. He lurched painfully to his feet and walked out, not looking back. Stanley's gaze followed him as he left. 
A few minutes later, he shrugged and left the locker room, limping slightly, forgetting the moment altogether until he had cause to remember it almost twenty years later. All right, so that is the end of episode one. It takes me uh, 12 episodes to finish this book. Each of these episodes lasts approximately half an hour, and I have a commentary at the end because many people are interested in the creative process. Well, if you're interested in writing a book, um, it's easier than you think. I love reading, and uh, for much of the period of my life, I thought it would be fun to write a book. Because of many of the people I've met, I've run into some tremendously interesting characters, and they say, write what you know about, and I've learned a lot over the years. So a story was pretty self-formed in the back of my mind, but like many people, I'm busy, and I never really thought I would be up to writing a book. I mean, that seems like something that only really important people do. Well, my wife is, uh, was a choir director, and we were taking a, a bunch of kids to New York City, uh, and we were chaperoning that. And I talked to one of the other chaperones who mentioned offhand that she was going there to visit her book editor. She was a professional author. Now, her name is Tamara Blodgett. She still writes, does it professionally. Very nice person and a very normal person. She was very approachable and extremely encouraging and told me two numbers that were super important to me. The first one, she said that most authors write 300 words a day. Hmm. Well, as you can tell, I have a radio background and we used to write commercials all the time and we knew for a fact when you're writing copy that 90 words is a 30 second commercial and 120 words is a 60-second commercial. And we, were write, we would write the commercials all day long. So that did not seem difficult at all to do. And the second thing she said was that a book was typically 65,000 words. Well, I thought to myself, I bet I could crank out 1,000 words a day, no problem. That means I could write a book in about two months. And I did it. Uh, that's the first book you read. It actually is less than 65,000 words. One of the things you pick up in radio, constantly paring down words to get the number of words down for a 30-second ad. So you tend to write in a very um, efficient way. And so the book moves along pretty good. Uh, I was kind of hoping it would have more words. I don't know why. It just seems like a book should be nice and thick. But people tell me they like the fast pace of the book, and, and that's fine with me. So that's a little bit of the creative process. We'll talk more about some of the other things I ran into as I was looking for ways to produce the book, get it illustrated, get the book art done, get it on ISBN, which is, oh, anyway, it's a big, long journey, and you want to find out more and see what happens in the book next. We'll see you next time for Episode 2 of Dead Air on I Like That Story. Until next time, I'm Jeff Gould. God bless. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.